Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss Harun al-Rashid's wildly precarious succession arrangement. The whole affair between him and his brother, after their father's death, had underlined a few of the pitfalls of the process. But even armed with the memory of that bitter experience, the caliph managed to come up with something only marginally more secure. Since this will be our last episode on the acclaimed al-Rashid, we'll also use the opportunity to reflect on his time in charge and size up his performance as caliph. Episode 54 Legacy Issues Even the breeziest of Arab or Islamic history books have much to say about Harun al-Rashid, though I don't think I fully appreciated how thorny his reign was until now. I've repeatedly emphasized how universally praised he is, something I often contrasted to the decidedly mixed reality we encounter combing through the details of what actually transpired. It's a paradox that I hope to address today. I have come to believe that al-Rashid is remembered as the leader who achieved the peak of Abbasid glory almost entirely because of how devastatingly his carefully designed succession unfolded. It's a messy and disputed topic, but after detailing it, we'll have rounded out all we know about this celebrated caliph and will finally be able to assess his contribution as leader of the Ummah. Before we dive in, I thought it would be helpful to include a warning about the names you're about to encounter. Three of Al-Rashid's twelve sons will be significant to our episode today, and as usual, I'll ignore their real names and refer to them by their eventual titles, to cut down on any possible confusion. This will only go so far. I'm afraid their titles also sound very similar to one another, and some listeners may have a hard time distinguishing between Al-Amin al-Ma'mun, and the far less important al-Mu'tamin. One tip for keeping them straight is to focus on how long the name is. At just four letters, al-Amin is the shortest of the trio, and he goes first. Al-Ma'mun is a little longer, so he goes next, while al-Mu'tamin, with seven letters, comes in at a distant third. If you're wondering why their titles all sound so close to one another, it's because they're all derived from the root word amin, trustworthiness or safety. They all basically share the same meaning. Unless you want to split hairs, all three titles can be translated roughly as, quote, he who is fit to be entrusted, that is, with the safekeeping of the state. I wish you luck keeping them straight. More familiar characters will also feature in this affair. The Baramika and their many enemies will come up to some degree as the competition between them inevitably seeped into the sensitive matter of succession, a major reason why we find so much disagreement on the subject. But the most prominent role will be played by Zubaida, Al-Amin's Abbasid mother and the Caliph's favorite wife. Alright, disclaimer over. Let's get started with this slow-motion train wreck of a succession. 
our story begins in 783, back in al-Mahdi's reign, before the young Harun had become a caliph. That was the year two royal weddings took place between a pair of Abbasid brothers and sisters. It's not as incestuous as it sounds at first blush. The royal heirs, al-Hadi and al-Rashid, were wed to their cousins Lubaba and Zubayda, daughters of their uncle Jafar ibn al-Mansur. These intra-clan marriages remained a valuable mechanism for reinforcing the dynasty's cohesion, a way of honoring kin and ensuring that the important branches of the family tree didn't drift into ruinous competition. The only reason we have anything to say about these particular nuptials is because Harun al-Rashid eventually fell in love with Zubayda. Now, like I said earlier, there's plenty of conflicting material but please indulge me as I use an entertaining, if unbelievable, account to get the ball rolling. It says that early in their marriage, Zubaydah complained to her family that Harun was ignoring her and spending far too much time with a songstress of his. A group of Abbasids thus set out to speak to the young al-Rashid, then in his late teens, hoping to get him to pay Zubaydah a little more attention. After hearing what they had to say, he had the woman sing to them, and she was so enchanting that the Abbasids abandoned their original mission and returned to admonish Zubayda instead, telling her that she was unreasonable for asking her man to abandon such ethereal beauty. The first act of this fanciful tale concludes with a repentant Zubayda admitting the error of her ways and gifting her husband ten women for his harem by way of apology. While this narration is already a little outlandish, it gets better. Maybe unreliable, but like much of the seemingly made-up oral material we come across, it feels like it's been made up in order to communicate something true. In this case, it's that the Abbasids had a real stake in this marriage's success, and that al-Rashid enjoyed the company of other women and kept a considerable harem, which eventually peaked at around 2,000, with Zubaydah's knowledge and consent. Considering how rare it is for women to break into the historical narrative, it is refreshing to see another figure who can hold a candle up to Al-Khayzuran. One was Al-Rashid's mother and the other his wife, indicating how large a role was played by women during his reign. While we may look upon this as a virtue today, some commentators saw his readiness to listen to women as a weakness in the caliph's will. Okay, now back to our strange and predictably chauvinistic account. About a year or so later, it was the caliph's turn to complain about his wife, and he told an older relative that he was having a hard time getting Zubaydah pregnant. The wise man knew exactly what the trouble was, and he informed al-Rashid that his wife was to blame. The only explanation was that she simply didn't want it enough. Thankfully, this learned sage had a clever solution to remedy the problem. He told al-Rashid that the best way to inflame his wife's passion for a child was to make Zubaydah jealous by knocking up one of the many women in his circles. While there's no consensus, most credible accounts say the woman Harun selected for this most judicious plan was a servant who had grown up in the royal household. Others claim she was one of the ten women Zubaydah had gifted al-Rashid, but I find that a little too narratively convenient. Despite these and other minor differences, all accounts agree that she was of Persian stock, an important detail that will soon be relevant. 
The inspired plan worked out perfectly. When Zubaydah found out about everything, she became angry at first, then envious, and finally pregnant. Harun al-Rashid's Persian mystery woman gave birth to his eldest son on a fateful day, and our histories delight in noting how three caliphs were touched by destiny on the night of September the 13th, 786. Al-Hadi passed away, Al-Rashid ascended to power, and Al-Ma'mun was born. Tragically, Al-Ma'mun's mother died either in childbirth or shortly afterwards. A few months later, Zubaydah, now wife of the Ummah's latest caliph, gave birth to his second son, Al-Amin. Despite being Al-Rashid's eldest, Al-Ma'mun had some serious disadvantages from the start. His mother's death had robbed him of one of the most important advocates a Abbasid prince could have in their corner. And even though Zubaydah had agreed to raise him in her residence, her own son was only a few months younger than his half-brother. It was only natural for her to favor Al-Amin, especially with the entire caliphate at stake. What's more, Al-Amin's purely Abbasid descent ensured that he could count on the support of his entire clan when it came time for his father to pick an heir. Harun al-Rashid first turned his attention to the matter of succession five years into his reign, which is something I found a little strange. I mean, that's five years with nobody lined up, and his brother had just died suddenly at a young age, so why wasn't this more of a priority? The only answer I can come up with is that he was waiting for the two sons he had just sired to grow up, which was a risky strategy, one that frustrated the many Abbasids who hoped that they would be named in the interim. In 791, when Al-Amin was only five years old, the caliph tasked Fadl ibn Yahya al-Barmaki with facilitating his designation as the official heir. That he ignored Al-Ma'mun entirely, and Al-Amin's incredibly young age both signaled to me that there was a lot of lobbying going on behind the scenes, doubtless from Zubaydah and the rest of the Abbasids. Now, in principle, there was nothing stopping Al-Rashid from simply announcing that he wanted Al-Amin to succeed him. But the boy was only five years old, and without adequate preparation, such a decree could lead to opposition from the more ambitious Abbasids, or even accusations of tyranny from the masses. To accomplish his mission, Fadr made his way to Khurasan, which had proven to be an indispensable foundation for official authority in the past. There, he greased every palm he could find, and endeared himself to the province's officials, nobles, and commanders alike. After months of touring the east, he publicly declared his own backing for Al-Amin and pressed his new friends to do the same. They quickly obliged, and with Khurasan's support, the pressure was on for other governors to do the same in their provinces. In late 792, Al-Amin was officially named as Al-Rashid's successor at a ceremony in the capital. Fadl al-Barmaki was rewarded generously for his part in bringing this about with many narrations reporting that the caliph asked Fadl to mentor his son, just like Fadl's father had mentored him. Although we find that claim repeated in various sources, there is good reason to doubt it. For one thing, we don't come across any material about interactions between the two. 
other narrations also name different tutors, like the famed grammarian Al-Kithai or one of his star pupils Al-Ahmar al-Nahawi, distinguished men of letters, ones worthy of educating a future caliph. There's also the fact that Fadl didn't stay in Baghdad. He moved around the caliphate quite a bit over the next few years. But the best reason to be skeptical of his alleged mentorship of Al-Amin was the strained relationship between Zubaydah and the Baramika. So obviously Zubaydah was very grateful for Fadl's efforts towards making sure her son was next in line, but that's effectively where their interests diverged. Like everyone else close to Al-Rashid, she was uncomfortable with how much sway the Baramika held over the Caliph. As Al-Rashid's favorite wife, Zubaydah was afforded far more privileges than the others, and she had her own court, which she convened in her personal residential palace. It quickly became a den of hostility towards the Baramika, frequented by their many ambitious opponents and others who longed for their demise. This was the environment in which Al-Amin grew up, so it's hard to imagine him developing a close relationship to Fadl al-Barmaki. But let's split the difference and say that Fadl tried and failed to be his mentor. We don't really find enough material about the young Al-Amin's upbringing to substantiate things either way. But we know that he and Al-Ma'mun received a similar education because they often come up together in accounts during this period. Child-rearing isn't the sort of thing the Arabs talked about a lot, so the evidence is pretty thin in our oral narrations. But there's stuff like the caliph presenting both sons at court for distinguished attendees to greet, or asking learned men and poets to assess them jointly. But just because they were put through a common curriculum did not mean that they were shaping up the same. While there are narrations in which the two are equally praised, there are also others which depict Al-Amin as something of a spoiled mama's boy. He would ignore his instructors and do whatever he liked instead. His mother's attendants would cater to his increasingly lavish tastes, and there was never any question of punishment befalling Zubaydah's only son. Al-Ma'mun, however, possibly by virtue of having been relatively neglected, was far more diligent in his duties and respectful of his elders. The differences between them grew harder to ignore as the boys matured, and we hear that Al-Rashid began having misgivings about his choice of heir when they were around 12 years old. Most narrations say it was his close friend Ja'far al-Barmaki who alerted him to the shortcomings of Al-Amin and the potential of Al-Ma'mun while others say the caliph picked up on this himself. We're told that after much contemplation, Al-Rashid decided that the best solution was to name Al-Ma'mun as second in line for the throne. There is plenty of disagreement about what prompted the decision, a critical turning point in this affair. Some sources make it sound like Al-Amin's ineptitude compelled the caliph to pick someone more dependable, and that the only reason Al-Rashid didn't remove him outright was because of the uproar it would have caused within Abbasid circles. Others think that Al-Ma'mun's ascension was masterminded by the Baramika. Having found Al-Amin too strong-willed and uncontrollable, they hoped his half-brother would prove to be more pliant. An ethnic angle emerges at this point as well, with some saying the Persian Baramika hoped to replace the purely Arab Al-Amin with the partly Persian al-Ma'mun. It didn't help that Ja'far al-Barmaki was selected as al-Ma'mun's new mentor, a choice which only invigorated the rumors about the young prince and his supposed patrons.
Lots of theories, but ultimately it helps to remember that naming two successors was standard procedure for the Abbasids, a habit they had picked up back under Umayyad persecution. While the whole drama between al-Hadi and al-Rashid made al-Mahdi's succession a failure, the previous ones had all gone relatively well. I first found it odd that al-Rashid went for a setup identical to his father's, pitting the interests of two half-brothers against one another like that, but he believed he had a solution to that problem, which he presented to the Ummah four years later in 802. Al-Rashid led the pilgrimage that year, and in his entourage, he brought both his sons and many prominent members of his clan and administration. Once in Mecca, he dictated to Al-Amin a contract which the 16-year-old heir had to write out in his own hand before signing. Al-Yaqubi quotes the whole thing. It is about a thousand words long, and its series of oaths and pledges give off a very distinct terms and conditions vibe. Among other things, it described Al-Rashid's plan for his succession. Al-Amin would be the next caliph, but Al-Ma'mun would be both his lifelong successor and governor of Khurasan. With legalistic precision, it very clearly laid out that Al-Amin would not be allowed to remove his brother from either position, and it delineated each son's jurisdiction and responsibilities in great detail. It ended with a long paragraph saying there was no way to atone for any violation of the contract's terms, that any infraction, no matter how small, automatically invalidated Al-Amin's claim on power and carried a death sentence for anyone foolish enough to conspire along with him. It ended up being a hefty and grave legal document, and as soon as Al-Amin was done, it was his brother's turn. Al-Ma'mun was dictated a similar contract by his father, basically agreeing to the terms his brother had accepted, penalties and all. Both were written out during a ceremony the caliph held inside the Kaaba, where witnesses also testified to the oaths taken by the pair of princes. Al-Rashid then ordered the two signed contracts be hung on the outside of the holy shrine to be read by all during the pilgrimage. I can just picture Harun al-Rashid beaming with pride at having discovered an ironclad solution to this chronic threat to the Ummah. But was he truly that naive? Did he really believe that there was no way for things to go wrong just because he'd made his kids sign a paper in public? We even come across stories in our sources that describe an atmosphere of doubt following this arrangement. Stuff like Jafar al-Barmaki making al-Amin swear in front of everyone, quote, May God fail me if I ever betray my brother, three times in a row. Or a line of poetry allegedly recited by a mystical vagabond on a donkey that went, quote, By the faithless pledges they spoke, the fires of fitna they stoke. You know what's coming. I know what's coming. And the fact that he was taking the trouble to do this at all meant that al-Rashid also knew what was coming. The question is, did he think he'd managed to stop it? Before concluding the topic of succession, it's important to note that al-Rashid turned on the Baramika very shortly after this elaborate ceremony with al-Amin and al-Ma'mun. While the two subjects are not often linked, I did say last time that there was one more explanation for the downfall of the Baramika and it has to do with ensuring al-Rashid's succession went according to plan. 
I personally like the Baramika, and think they serve the state quite faithfully. But to play caliph's advocate for a second, they had so much control over the administration that one could argue that the Baramika could tip the scale towards either son after al-Rashid's passing. It's not so much a matter of whether they do that and how, it's more about the fact that al-Amin held a deep disdain for them, and he was the intended heir. Perhaps, and I'm only speculating here, al-Rashid felt that should they outlive him, the Baramika would complicate his son's ascension. The reasoning isn't meant to stand on its own, but if the caliph thought that it fell to him to take them out, that helps explain why he was so ruthless with the entire family after being failed by Jafar al-Barmaki. Anyway, like all compromises, al-Rashid's arrangement kindled significant discontent, especially among the many supporters of al-Amin, until then the sole heir of the entire ummah. Among them counted many of the anti-Baramika faction, such as the Hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabi'ah, governor of Khurasan, Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, along with the other leaders of the Abna, and of course al-Amin's mother, Zubaydah. While I'm sure they were all quite pleased and terrified with the abrupt violence the caliph inflicted upon the Baramika just a few weeks later, Zubaydah could not make peace with this new threat to her son's future reign. One exchange found in our sources between al-Rashid and his wife hints at the coming conflict between the half-brothers pretty openly. In it, Zubaydah protested that the caliph was being unfair by leaving more troops with al-Ma'mun, who was to be a mere governor, than with al-Amin, who was to be the leader of the ummah. Al-Rashid at first explained that al-Amin had no need for armies since he would be ruling over peaceful lands from the capital, while al-Ma'mun would be on the caliphate's most dangerous front. He then sharply added, and this bit's important, that al-Amin was far more likely to be the perpetrator than the victim, and the less martial power he had on his side, the safer everyone was. A sensible point, only suspicious on account of its being too prescient, borderline prophetic, really. At this point, you might be wondering whether or not I had actually mentioned three names at the start of this episode, and if so, what happened to that last guy? Another son of Harun al-Rashid, al-Mu'tamin, the one the caliph liked to take with him when he raided the Byzantines, also made it into the succession. One year after the whole public ceremony at Mecca with al-Amin and al-Ma'mun, al-Rashid added a clause to work al-Mu'tamin into his scheme. He was made third in line and the lifelong governor of al-Awasim, the province on the caliphate's Byzantine frontier. Al-Mu'tamin's mentor was a respected Abbasid who had ruled over those parts for a very long time, so it seems like the prince was being groomed for the role. Grim fact, his mentor was so influential that the caliph had him arrested on accusations of conspiring with the imprisoned Baramika to usurp his throne. But anyway, as advertised, al-Mu'tamin was a distant afterthought, with the real contest being between the other two. That's pretty much everything we know about al-Rashid's plans for succession. In preparation for their upcoming lives, al-Mu'tamin took on a more active role along the Ummah's border with the Byzantines, al-Ma'mun went to command the armies against rebels in Khurasan, 
and Al-Amin continued to royally faff around his mother's pleasure palace. Al-Mu'tamin was officially placed in the succession in 803. We do not know how old he was, only that he was younger than his half-brothers. Also missing are reports on any interactions between the three heirs in the six years between then and Al-Rashid's death in 809. It almost seems like the moment they became heirs, they also became adversaries, which actually makes perfect sense. If Al-Rashid had managed to delude himself into thinking his plan had worked at first, it must have grown increasingly difficult to maintain that illusion, as this estrangement between his sons endured. As always, it is difficult to determine what the caliph actually believed, but there must have been plenty of evident signs of the coming struggle. Now that we've thoroughly gone through his succession, and having already covered all these different angles on his reign, it is finally time to assess Harun al-Rashid's legacy. I find myself curious what you think. I feel like there are so many ways one could go with this that I almost don't want to influence you with my own opinion. Almost. I mean, I totally understand someone who says that al-Rashid was the best caliph ever, period, they would certainly have plenty of historical material to point to. The sources are full of generous depictions. All you have to do is disregard just how unsubstantiated they are. Before I get into all his shortcomings, I want to say that Al-Rashid did an amazing job when it came to some very key duties of his. Obviously, for things to be so great for so long, he must have been doing something right. And that thing was keeping the Baramika in charge. Don't get me wrong, he had some good contributions, like how he banned extracting taxes through torture, a practice which had become increasingly common during his father's heedless reign. I'm not even trying to minimize his role by saying that the best thing he did was trust his mentor. Al-Rashid had a knack for picking the right people for the job. Not always, but often. His love of knowledge surrounded him with impressive and creative minds and he frequently made use of their rare talents. So Harun al-Rashid was definitely not a terrible caliph. That would be someone like the Umayyad Sulaiman or Walid II, someone who neglected all his duties towards the Ummah or carelessly ripped open its most potent divides. Al-Rashid didn't do any of that. The caliphate got stronger and richer during his reign, more proof that he was great at doing his job. Despite these meaningful successes, I feel like he failed to deliver on so many fronts that I find myself underwhelmed. With so many disappointments, I don't know where to begin. I guess I can stomach the loss of the entire West. I mean, unless they were going to put some seriously transformative effort into it, the Abbasids were always bound to lose everything past Egypt. Still not exactly a triumph, though Al-Rashid lucked out with the faithful Aghlabids who continued to pay the caliphate tribute throughout their existence. Then there's his signature success of trouncing the Byzantines. Harun al-Rashid was lucky to reign at a moment in time where the power balance between the two states was firmly in his favor and he had no other real threat to worry about. Considering all his advantages, it is upsetting how much credit he gets for what little he accomplished. The records make it clear that his armies never seriously set out to expand the frontier, even when they marched way deep into Byzantine territory. 
The campaigns he led were so massive that he could have easily taken key cities in the heart of Anatolia, but he settled for tribute and easy victories instead. Easy victories that were later propagandized into eternal glory. Another topic that gets downplayed or reversed with al-Rashid was his treatment of the Hashemites. I was cagey about it in the episode on internal unrest, but despite the sanitized record found in our early histories, the caliph is pretty infamous for his vicious persecution of the clan. So many descendants of the Prophet and their families were killed that it is not easy to keep count. Estimates in the reverentially diligent Shia sources put the figure at a few hundred. This policy may have seemed like a prophylactic or triumphant one to al-Rashid, but he was only making the issue worse by pushing Hashemite partisans, and even their ideologies, to more dangerous extremes. Al-Rashid's treatment of these dissident communities led them to embittered isolation, deep in the desert, where uncompromising creeds flourished. These movements would fester until they one day posed an existential threat to the caliphate. The rise of the Fatimids and Karmatians won't take place for another century, however, and al-Rashid harmed the caliphate in more immediate ways as well. His removal of the Baramika robbed the Ummah of its most skilled and experienced administrators. His reasons remain a mystery, but the family seemed to have been a trustworthy bunch who anyway had no refuge beyond the caliph's favor, so their loss was a truly self-inflicted wound in my book. Just as bad as this squandering of gifted bureaucrats was al-Rashid's empowerment of bad ones. His appointment of Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan as governor of Khurasan had terrible consequences, but he kept him there, despite persistent complaints and rebellions from the populations ibn Mahan abused. The fact that our sources praise al-Rashid as being the one who banned torture while ignoring his tacit approval of Ibn Mahan's inexcusable methods is a great example of the kind of bias replete in coverage of this particular caliph. So if his reign is as unremarkable as I say, why is Harun al-Rashid's reputation so exceptionally cloudless? Again, It's not like things were bad during his time in charge. The caliphate was rich and powerful, and that's a good backdrop. But the type of golden nostalgia you pick up on when reading accounts of his reign makes you feel like there's something more going on. It's helpful to keep in mind that although the narrators are said to have been contemporaries, the transmitters of the oral material were speaking a couple generations later, in the mid to late 9th century. Oral histories have a way of morphing to fit the speaker's worldview, and these men were living in a capital slowly rebuilding from a devastating civil war that had left it a ghost of its former self. To them, Al-Rashid's reign was the last time Baghdad and the Ummah were whole and untouched by civil strife, and in it they saw a kind of unity they sorely lacked in their oppressive and divided lives. Therefore, ironically, the caliph owes his hallowed reputation to the catastrophe which followed his succession. I feel a little guilty after laying into Harun al-Rashid like this. He really did have many commendable virtues. It's just that his power was so boundless 
that he simply failed to live up to the promise of its potential. But that's obviously an easy thing to say in hindsight. Trying to sum his reign up in a few short statements is so frustrating an exercise that the question eventually morphed from how to why. Condensing the man's wild and varied time in charge necessarily misses out on the complexity that made it so rich. He barely fit into five episodes, and there's no reason to try and squeeze him any tighter. Instead, let's take a cue from our sources and savor the twilight of the Caliphate's golden age. Join me next time as we get started with the reign of Al-Rashid's first designated heir, Al-Amin, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.